The following audio is presented by Grace Church. For more about us, visit discovergrace.com, or you can download our free app by searching Grace Church Orlando on your phone or tablet. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. Good morning. So if you're visiting here this morning, I grew up in Macon, Georgia, and I lived in a house that was on 25 acres, and so there was a lot of woods around us, and it was, I don't know, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, and I was about 17 years old. I was a believer at this point. I was watching a movie with my girlfriend, and we were in our basement, and so it's got some windows behind us, but uh, it's, it's downstairs, and got this suite set up. We had a pool table, TV, everything, and so we were hanging out in there watching The Sixth Sense. Anybody seen that movie? Yeah, some of y'all are laughing, yeah. So it's a pretty scary movie. It's kind of eerie. And uh, so like I said, it's 9, 10 o'clock at night. It's pretty dark. And we're watching this movie. And uh, so we're, just to give you the layout, we're on sofas right here, the windows behind us, and we're facing the TV. And it's that moment in the movie where the boy is going to the bathroom and this incredibly scary scene takes place. Okay, so right there. And all of a sudden, my girlfriend at the time goes, hey, did you hear that? And I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, you didn't hear the like tap, tap, tap on the window? And I was like, no, I didn't hear any tap, tap, tap on the window, right? And so I didn't pay any attention to it. We kept watching the movie. And then all of a sudden she goes, did you hear that? And I was like, hear what? And she's like, I heard a tap, tap on the window. And I was like, what are you talking about? I didn't hear anything. So I turn around, I'm looking in the window, you know, trying to see if there's anything out there. There's nothing. And I'm like, what? what's the deal? Like, I know the movie's scary, but nothing's going on. And so we start watching the movie again. All of a sudden I hear bang, bang, bang on the window. And she goes, I know you heard that, <laughs> right? And I'm like, yeah, I heard that. And I turn around and all of a sudden I see somebody standing tall in a full scream outfit, mask, like covered in black, staring me in the face. And I was like, oh my gosh. And then all of a sudden I realized in that moment that the door that's 10 feet this way is unlocked. And I was like, oh no, I'm not kidding you. Door flies open, this guy busts in with a knife in his hand. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, like, what is going on? And she just starts screaming. And so it's that moment where it's like fight or flight, right? And so I thought about bailing real quick. And, uh, and I was like, you know, I can't do that right now. And so I literally just got up and all of a sudden we just started to charge at one another, right? And so I'm sitting here thinking like, what do I do? I swing, do I tackle him? Like he's got a knife in his hand. Oh my gosh, you know? So I start to run into him. And all of a sudden, at the last second, my buddy pulls his mask off. And he's like, it's Gary, don't hit me. And I was like, dude, I I don't know if I was going to hit you, but I was going to do something, right? I was terrified. Have you ever been terrified in your life? Have you? I mean, have you been in a situation where you're just going, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do right now. I'm so scared. This morning in the text, David, who's going to be the king, is terrified. He is absolutely terrified. It's this moment where I want to bring you up to speed. So if you weren't here last week, David and Jonathan 
made another covenant to one another. And here's the deal. The whole entire chapter is centered around whether or not King Saul is out to get David, whether or not he's going to pursue him and try to kill him. Okay? And so it's this picture of they're arguing over that. And in the midst of all of this, Jonathan has this tremendous faith. And he says, hey, I know that regardless if my father tries to kill you, I believe that God has said you're going to be king. And so I'm going to make a covenant. I'm asking that you would make a covenant with me and that you would commit to taking care of my children when you become a king. It's this incredible picture of faith. And in the midst of this, all of a sudden, they realize that King Saul is out to kill and to pursue David. And the end scene is this. It's David and Jonathan's farewell. And it says in the text that David wept the most. And so you begin to pick up on this picture of David being in this emotional state, this this distraught state of, I'm about to be a fugitive, I'm about to be on on the run, he's heartbroken, he is terrified. And so for the rest of Samuel, he's on the run and he's a fugitive before the most powerful man in their region. It's crazy. He's terrified out of his mind. But what you're gonna see this morning, and this is beautiful, that in the midst of his humanity, in the midst of how he responds, we're gonna see God's generosity in David's life. That in the midst of his broken story, in the midst of his, all of his terror, all of his fear, we're gonna see God being incredibly generous to David, which leads us to our big idea. Do you recognize God's generosity in your story? I want you to think about that for a minute. Some of you in here, maybe you're terrified. Maybe it's not that somebody's busting in your door and coming out with a knife, right? But maybe you're terrified of your financial situation. Or maybe you're terrified of your work situation or relationships that you're in. Or maybe a tragedy has happened in your life and you're terrified and you don't know how to handle it. You don't know how to move forward and you're responding in fear and you're terrified at what may come. Maybe you're here this morning and your life is not going the way you thought it would go. And you're scared and you're anxious and you're heartbroken. This is exactly the position that David is in. This is exactly where he is. And so this is a long text. We're gonna be covering all of it. So I'm gonna break it down in three ways just just to make it palpable, okay? And the first one is this. It's that God provides. God provides, or God's provision. Let's look at it. Chapter 21, verse one. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? Verse two, and David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Okay, so let me paint the picture here real quick. Nob was a few miles away from the hometown of Saul. It was the priestly city at the time. So they moved the tabernacle to Nob at this point. It's a priestly city, and this guy, Ahimelech, is the chief priest at the time. That's literally what his title is. He's chief priest. 
Now, why he's trembling, we're not exactly sure. The, the idea probably is, is that the last couple of times we've seen somebody coming alone, it hasn't looked good for the prophets or for the priest. And so it's like, what's, what's going on? He's afraid of David because he sees that nobody is accompanying him. So David fabricates the story. Many commentators think that, uh, that David is telling a lie, that he's making up a story about having business with the king to actually save Ahimelech. So that when they come to him and they say, hey, did you provide safe passage? Did you come and help out this fugitive? He can say, well, he said he came in the king's matters. Now, whether or not that's David's motive, we don't really know, but a lot of people think that might be. But either way, he's being incredibly deceptive. And here's my, th my thought. I think it's likely that David's human, that he's in a sinful reaction to a scary situation. Instead of operating in faith, he's operating out of fear and he's making up anything as he goes because he's just trying to make it to the next stage. He's trying to get away from Saul. And so we see that. And so I want to ask you, have you ever been in a stressful situation in your life where you felt like you had to lie? Where you felt like, man, I, I feel boxed in. I feel cornered. I don't know what to do. I've just got to say something to get in, to the next stage. Have you ever felt like that? I know I have. I know there's been plenty of situations where I felt like, man, I don't know how to handle this. And so I want to tell a lie. I want to fabricate a story. I want to create something so that it seems as if something else is going on. Have you ever done that? I mean, maybe it was a job or something, but just imagine his life is on the line and he's fabricating something. So David goes on, verse three. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread. So he kind of jumps to what he was here to do. Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. I'm always like this. I always operate out of this way. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. So David jumps into his reason for coming. He's like, hey, I'm hungry. I need food. Do you have any? In ancient times back then, food was like a staple. It's like going to Japan and asking for rice. It's like growing up in Georgia and saying, can I have cornbread? It's, it's just that kind of, my wife said that wasn't going to be funny. That's okay. That's okay. That's all right. But Ahimelech doesn't have any common bread, right? He only has holy bread. And this bread is known as the bread of presence, or if you read the KJV, the show bread. Here's the idea. It was this bread that was in the tabernacle, and it literally meant that you're meeting face to face with God when you eat the bread. It's crazy. So it's this holy portion it's actually the holiest portion of food. And he's coming, and he's saying, hey, listen, I don't have any kind of common bread, but I've got this one type of bread and it's a holy bread and only priest can eat it. The bread represented the very presence of God. And that's why Ahimelech asked David whether he's kept himself from a woman 
and, and that all that are accompanying him as well. In cultural context, this meant it, if you hadn't, that you were ceremonially unpure. And so if he's gonna eat bread in the presence of God, so to speak, then you've got to be ceremonially clean. But why would Ahimelech give David bread that only priests are allowed to eat? It's interesting. Jesus brings up this very situation in Matthew 12, verses one through eight. The exact same story. And he has a lot to say about it. Let's, let's read it. Matthew chapter 12, verse one. At the time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, his disciples were hungry. Interesting. And they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. Verse five, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless for the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus comes in, he explains it. Jesus is saying that Ahimelech made the right choice in giving David the bread. Why though? There's a few reasons. Because providing food as a mercy for David was the intent of the law. In other words, he didn't, it's not the letter of law, it's the spirit of the law. He's saying, hey, listen, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And it, here, here's where it gets really cool. The bread of the presence is the presence and the provision of God face to face. And now we see David, the anointed one, remember? The special one, the one who's gonna become king, the one who's been chosen by God, come to a, a priest and says, hey, I need bread. The letter of the law, so to speak, would say only priests can eat it. But there's a bigger picture here. David is the anointed chosen one. And so Jesus is saying, Ahimelech chose right in saying, I'm gonna offer you the bread of the presence because God in this moment is going to provide for his anointed one, his chosen one, his king. It's pretty crazy. I mean, this is awesome. And so God, Jesus is saying that he chose right. He fulfilled the intent of the law. He provided in a way that only God can provide for David. But here's where it gets really interesting. If I'm right, that David's operating out of fear and living by deceit instead of faith, this picture is pretty incredible. Think about it. God is generous. He shows generosity and favor to David in the midst of his deceit, in the midst of his sin. In other words, Romans 5, 8 applies here. While David was yet a sinner, Christ died, right? And so it's this picture of God in the midst of David's brokenness, in the midst of his sin, in the midst of his fear, his whole entire situation is centered on him. He's trying to figure it out. He's trying to save himself. He's trying to get to the next stage. And God comes in and says, I'm gonna provide for you. I'm gonna take care of you, even though you're messing up, even though you're not trusting me, even though you're not walking in faith, I'm 
going to provide for you because I love you that much. I've chosen you specifically. I'm working in your life. Are you struggling with sin in your life right now? I mean, are you, are you currently right now struggling with sin? Past week, you've been struggling with sin. Past month, you felt like, man, I just keep messing up. I just, I'm in this cycle. This is an incredible word for you. This is an incredible word for me. I get in that cycle of, I feel like I'm condemned, I'm judged, I'm broken, I have no hope. I feel like, man, I keep trying to move the ball down the field as a Christian, as a believer, as a dad, as a husband, as all of these things, and I keep dropping the ball. And God is continually saying to Clint and continually saying to you, I love you. I'm gonna provide for you. I've given my chosen one, David, bread in the midst of a really tragic situation. But I want you to know that I sent my son to provide for you, that while you are yet a sinner, he died for you. That's an incredible truth. God provides in the midst of our story. Isn't God kind to us? I mean, do you recognize God's generosity in your story? Second theme we see is this, God's protection. God's protection. Verse seven. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So Doeg wasn't a good guy. The Edomites were not favorable before Israel. They were somewhat enemies. And that's pretty consistent in the past. It's pretty consistent in the future. The Edomites were not liked by the Israelites. And there's this guy, Doeg, and, and the text says, interesting, right? What does that mean, detained before the Lord? At first glance, I thought that this was some kind of special, like divine God somehow like detaining him in a prison, some kind of crazy thing. But I think more so what's taking place is he's in punishment. He did something that wasn't favorable before the king. And so he's being detained as a punishment in, in Nob. And so we've got Doeg, the chief of Saul's herdsmen, and he's observing, observing all that Ahimelech and David are talking about. Verse eight, then David said to Ahimelech, then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I've brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. Notice he's continuing to lie. I had to come so quickly for the secret kingly business that I forgot food and my weapon. Do you have a weapon for me? A lot, of, a lot of people think that this is actually the real intent of why David came. Because he knew, as you're gonna see in a second, that there's a weapon in their midst that he knew about. So let's unpack that. Verse nine. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Allah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take, if you, if you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that, give it to me. It's worth mentioning that formerly when David faced Goliath, he was operating in the spirit. He had his eyes fixed on the Lord and he was saying, who would defy God Almighty himself, right? Y'all remember this? 
He's facing Goliath. He's a young boy and he's full of the spirit. He's operating in faith. And Saul comes and offers him his armor. And he says, I don't need that stuff. It's too heavy for me. I'm gonna trust the Lord. I'm gonna take the weaponry that I have. And then notice now, David is operating out of fear. And instead of being enamored with the Lord and seeing the, the presence and the power and the grace and the, just the immensity of the Lord, what does he see? He's enamored with Goliath's sword. He's enamored with this weapon that he thinks will save him, right? And so it said, he says, there's nothing like this. Like, I'm, I'm excited, so to speak, that I've got this, this huge sword, that I can use it for war, that I can use it in my battle, that I can use it in my situation. It's just showing, again, David's situation of instead of operating in faith, he's operating out of fear. He's not fixing his eyes on the Lord. You see the humanity and the reality of the Christian life. How many of you, man, I, I just relate to this so much. How many of you are like, man, all in with the Lord, you're growing, you're reading the word, you're praying, everything's going great in your life. And then all of a sudden you get sidetracked and you get enamored on something that doesn't benefit you, that's not operating out of faith, and you're all about that thing. How many of you can relate to that? I mean, I know I can. I know that that's the Christian life. That's part of the deal. And I love that this passage shows that it shows that we're human that we're broken, and that we need something bigger than ourselves. We need this picture. We need to be reminded that we are human and broken and sinful. Now, David is going to go from Nob to Gath, which interestingly enough is a Philistine city and the hometown of Goliath. I know David's on the run, but wow. My go-to would not be to go to Goliath's hometown when I have his sword, right? I mean, that's crazy. So let's take a look. Verse 10, and David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them. This is crazy. And pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. This is a picture. Then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see the man is mad. He's out of his mind. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you've brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Get him out of here. What's he doing here? David realizes he can't go in incognito anymore. They've identified that he is David, the guy who, you know, killed their champion, right? Who took out 200 of their men and circumcised them, right? And he's in here custody, he's in custody before their king. I would say at this point in the book of Samuel and in David's life, this is the most dangerous position David has ever been on in, in everything. This is the most dangerous. He's literally in a Philistine city. 
the enemy of who he killed 200 men. He, he brought war against them. He killed their champion. Everybody knows who he is. And the king has him in his corrupts. Can you imagine? I mean, this is a crazy scenario. But as a believer, this is so comforting that nothing, not even the most dangerous situation will go unnoticed by the Lord. He's able and powerful to work. So I got this story. It's actually the same girlfriend, okay? Yeah. So uh, this was, again, you know, I'm a believer, about 17. One of the things, I want to bring out the humanity and the reality. It may not relate one-to-one, but it will relate. So back then, and even now, I would say, one of my struggles is I love, I'm like a need for speed kind of guy, okay? I love adrenaline. I love the feeling of hitting the gas really fast. Some of y'all can relate, anybody in here? So I grew up racing all the time, okay? And so there was one night where it was really late. There was a bad storm, okay? And so I've got my girlfriend in the car. We're... I'm headed to drop her off at her house. Like I said, it's really late. Horrible storm. Tree limbs are falling. It's pouring down rain, lightning, everything. And all of a sudden, me and my buddy decide to race each other in the middle of the storm. And so we're going up where her neighborhood's at the end of the street, and it's a windy road, okay? And so we're literally racing. He's behind me, and all of a sudden, he gets into the left-hand lane, and we're doing this. And we're driving incredibly fast, dangerous fast. It's pouring down rain. And all of a sudden, there's a turn in the road. And I hit a water pocket. And instead of my car turning, I just keep going straight. And it was one of those moments where, uh, it's funny, not funny, my girlfriend in the passenger seat is hitting the brakes, right? (laughs) Trying to stop the car. And I can't do anything because my car's just going. And so we're flying. I mean, I'm not even gonna tell you how fast I was going. I was going fast. And all of a sudden, I see trees and I see a huge brick sign that enters into her neighborhood. And I was going, we're not gonna stop in time. Like, this is it. And it was all just happening before me. And I kid you not, I finally, the brakes caught. We slid all the way right to the sign. I was like two feet away. And I got out of the car and I just began to feel overwhelmed with emotions. And in that moment, God was saying, I protected you. I took care of you. Even in the midst of your brokenness, even in the midst of you making horrible decisions, even in the midst of you potentially killing your girlfriend, I want you to know that I love you and I'm calling you to more than this. I'm calling you to something better than this. And I wanna ask you this morning, what are you terrified of? What's bringing you this terror where you feel like God can't protect you? Where you feel like God can't, even in the midst of your brokenness, maybe you put yourself there like David. David literally goes away. He's a fugitive. He runs into the town of Gath out of all places where, and he's got his own, their own champion sword. He's put himself in this position. Yes, he's a fugitive, but why would you go there? And he's in this horrible situation and God protects David. Psalm 34 actually talks about this very scenario. And this is what it says. 
in verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Are you in trouble financially, physically, spiritually? Cry out to God. Psalm 34 says, cry out to God. He's near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. God will provide for you in his perfect timing. And it may be one of those moments where you feel like, no, 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 God's not providing for me. I don't see it. I can't feel it. I can't grasp it. But hang in there. He says the righteous, those who walk by faith, God will deliver in his way and in his timing. So the third theme that I see here is God's salvation. God's salvation. Verse 22, or chapter 22, verse 1. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them. And there was with him about 400 men. So I think this is a foreshadowing as well. God came to save who? The ones in debt, the sinners, the broken, the people who are in destitute, the people who are dissatisfied with their king, who've probably been mistreated by their king. Maybe you're here this morning and you are among those people. You feel like your life is a wreck. You feel like nothing's going well. And this is a foreshadowing of God saying, I call you. I don't call the righteous. I don't call the people who have it all together. I don't call everyone who does everything right. No, I call the sinners and the broken and the challenged and the destitute and the weak. I call you. Verse three. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And then they departed. Lastly, David seeks refuge for his parents and he takes them to the land of Moab. This is, this is awesome. So the book of Ruth, Ruth was a Moabite woman, okay? I'm gonna recap as quickly as I can the book of Ruth because I think it applies here. So if you haven't read the book of Ruth or it's been a while, read it today. Like go home, just read through the book of Ruth. But here it is. Naomi and her husband moved from Bethlehem to Moab because there was a famine. She has two sons who marry two women. Orpah, a lot of people like to call her Oprah, but Orpah, and Ruth, and her two sons die pretty soon in the story. And all of a sudden, it's this picture of Naomi. Naomi is a, is a mom who has now two women in her life, and all of her sons are gone, her husband's gone, and she is left destitute. Especially in that culture, it means that nobody's gonna provide for you. So she, is, she actually changes her name to Mara, which is bitter. So she's, it's just this horrible picture for Naomi. And so she says, hey, girls, I want to go back to Bethlehem and maybe we can find somebody to take care of us. Orpah says, I'm out, I'm not going with you. And then the famous line of Ruth, she says, wherever you go, I will go. And whoever your God is will be my God. She shows this incredible loyalty. Fast forward through the story, 
okay? All of a sudden, Ruth meets a man named Boaz who is incredibly loyal and he's loyal to Ruth in the same way that Ruth was loyal to Naomi. Full picture, Boaz marries Ruth. He's their kinsman redeemer, okay? And all of a sudden, Naomi's original story, which was full of tragic, horrible life. She, names her, she changes her name to Bitter. Everything seems terrible for her. All of a sudden, by the end of the story of Ruth, it's full circle. And you see God's loyalty and kindness. Here's what's interesting. There's two things. The entire book of Ruth is about this. God is not named once by the narrator. But what you see all throughout the book of Ruth is that God is in the decisions of the people. That God is in the midst of their story, even though he's not named. So you can't really see it in this clear way, but God is providing and working in Naomi's behalf. Not only that. Okay, so that's cool. That kind of ties to our text. Ruth is the great-grandmother of David. So hold that thought. Ruth is the great-grandmother of David. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. David is in a horrible situation. His family's in danger. And because everyone believes of his connection of being a Moabite on some level and being connected to Ruth, that now he's able to go into a foreign country where they're his enemy and he can come and say, I'm part Moabite. Would you take care of my family? Would you watch over me? It's God setting the stage for David and his family in a scenario and a story that nobody knew. Ruth never knew that out of her lineage, out of her line would come the anointed king and that out of the anointed king's lineage, Jesus Christ would be born. It's this incredible picture of God saving in ways that we can't see. I mean, thousands of Christians all around the world have stories of God using their crazy situation, their brokenness, their weakness for his glory and for the good of others. You may not see it now, but God's gracious generosity is all over your story. You just can't see it all. Will you believe it? I mean, will you trust him? Will you turn to Jesus? Will you fix your eyes on him and, and operate out of faith and not fear and say, God, I can't see it. I don't understand it. Everything seems to be coming apart. But God, I know that you're in our midst. I know that you're my kinsman redeemer. I know that you have a story and it's better than I can see. Whatever you're going through right now, God is generous and he meets the broken and their son. That's our story. Would you recognize his generosity in yours? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth, Lord. I just pray, God, that you would just do a great work in our hearts. God, we are so broken and so human, God. We, we don't see much far beyond our story. We just see the next step in front of us and we see our, our plight, we see our just our, our situation that can be hard. And God, we get stuck there. God, would you help us to see your generosity? Would you help us and remind us of who Jesus is and what he's done in our behalf? Lord, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.